the metaphor I like to think of is that there is a fire, you know, a huge forest fire raging all around us. And we are instructing women how to operate a fire extinguisher. We are completely ignoring the structural violence against women, all of these systems that are built into our culture, into our law, into halacha, all these things that are around us that reinforce and perpetuate and sometimes even create violence against women. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. Thursday was the International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women, which makes this an especially appropriate time to reflect on the issue of domestic violence in the Orthodox world. Many assume that domestic violence is an issue with minimal relevance in Orthodox communities. Rachel Stomel of the Center for Women's Justice, however, argues that this attitude is, sadly, very mistaken. She asserts that not only does domestic violence take place in our communities, but also that some of the systems we have in place, whether we mean the government-sponsored rabbinate, individual din, or perhaps even halacha itself, can be contributing factors. We'll get to my interview with Rachel in just a moment. First, I'd like to remind you to please subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please like The Orthodox Conundrum page on Facebook and join and participate in The Orthodox Conundrum discussion group on Facebook. We have some fantastic discussions there, so check it out today. I'd also like to ask you to become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, JCH merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. It's just a few dollars a month, and you can cancel at any time. We're looking forward to your joining the Jewish Coffeehouse team. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to reach hundreds or even thousands of listeners? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffeehouse can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or record and relax and let us do the heavy lifting, JCH Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let us help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jchpodcast.com, that's jchpodcast.com, to learn more and to sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage your audience today. Rachel Stomel is the Director of English Media at the Center for Women's Justice, an Israeli legal advocacy organization defending women's rights whenever they are compromised by the state in the name of religion. Rachel has been involved with Aguna activism for the past decade. She is also a translator, graphic designer, and runs the Jerusalem Poetry Slam. I think that this interview is very important, even as it presents some disturbing realities. For anyone who cares about Torah and Halacha, we need to face these questions head on. You may disagree with Rachel, but as she said on the podcast, raising the issue, even if we don't know how to create airtight solutions, is a necessary first step. Rachel Stomel, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum podcast. I'm glad to be here. Today we're going to speak about the very disturbing issue of domestic violence in Orthodox homes. So let's start off with a very basic but important question. Does domestic violence happen very often in the Orthodox community? I think that and your statistics have shown that domestic violence and violence against women 
is common in every single sector, in every single class. Um, the, there's this myth that, you know, you can do certain things to protect yourself or whatever, like, you know, like people, a lot of people think that modesty, for example, is a way to protect yourself against, you know, sexual violence or other kind of violence. Um, and, you know, we've seen time and time again that that is not true. While every community suffers from domestic violence in some way, there are certain ways that it affects communities um, in ways that are different and specific to them. So I think that domestic violence in the from community, you know, in the religious Jewish community plays out in different and distinct ways that might be invisible to someone who's on the outside. All right, Rachel. So there are some things that are specific and endemic to the Orthodox community, which is true for every community. Before that, can you just define domestic violence, give examples of what constitutes domestic violence? Yeah, so that's a great question, because a lot of people, especially when you read articles about domestic violence, what's the, you know, the image that you always see with a picture? It's, you know, a woman cowering in the corner with her hands up or someone with a black eye. Um, those are, you know, very, quote unquote, easy ways that we can identify, you know, that something bad is happening. Um, but domestic violence is not necessarily about, you know, black eyes and cowering in the corner. Um, domestic violence is, and all violence really, um, at its root is about control. You know, if you look at, for example, you know, the the get laws that are coming out of um, of England, you know, they they define get refuse as coercive control. Because um, so coercive control is a um, it's best understood not necessarily by what is being done to you, but what is being taken away from you. You know, namely your freedom. You know, so a lot of people ask, like, oh, why didn't she leave? And that kind of, you know, belies this, this um, fundamental misunderstanding about what domestic violence is, that it's not, you know, someone hurts you and it makes you want to leave. It's someone hurts you and it makes you want to stay. Um, it's intended to hold you hostage and to force you really to um, to see yourself not as an you know individual actor who has agency of their own, but really, you know, to be um, kind of, you know, cancel yourself because someone else has kind of taken over you. Can you explain that a little more? I, I'm sorry, I, I'm sure this is an ignorant question. When you say that it's designed to make them want to, or not want to, to force them to stay, what does that even mean? Can you explain that a little more? Yeah, so domestic violence is, um, um, because it's, it's all about control. You know, this is also why, you know, for example, women who try to leave or women who do leave domestic violence situations um, usually takes an average of seven times of leaving and coming back until they actually go because there's no support system for them or because, you know, psychologically they're kind of codependent and they, they can't, you know, think of their lives in any other way because what violence has done to them is kind of, you know, slowly chipped away at their sense of self and their sense of agency. You know, when we talk about domestic violence, it's really important to remember this like fundamental lack of control and lack of freedom. It's very easy then to go from that, you know, once you understand that it's about someone else taking away your freedom um, and really, you know, chipping away at your personal liberty, mm -hmm. really, um, it's very easy then to jump from there to, you know, the type of violence that is very common in the, you know, orthodox community, which is get refusal. When you say get refusal is a type of violence, can you explain what you mean? If we understand that violence at its core is about a woman or anyone really um, not having personal freedom, then get refusal is basically a way that the man who has to, according to Allah, unilaterally give the get to the woman, um, that he can use that as a tool to keep her in a marriage against her will. So while, you know, it might be easy for us to understand when, you know, let's say a man 
locks his you know wife in the house and takes away her keys you know we can see that as being oh that that's bad you know something wrong is going on um but it's a lot harder for us somehow um in certain circles anyway to see you know get refusal as inherently being a violent thing um that a man taking away a woman's um a woman's freedom to leave and exerting that control over her which halakhically he has the quote unquote right to do is is a violent act it's interesting because before you said that i would have put them in two separate categories obviously two very bad things i wouldn't have put them into the same category altogether but you're saying something different now rachel i know you're not going to answer this question directly at least not now and i know you don't like this question you told me that before we went on the air but i'm going to ask it anyway because I'm sure a lot of listeners have this question, and you can do with it what you want. What can we do to stop domestic violence? What can we, the listeners, do to stop domestic violence? Okay, so I mean, it is a good question. What I usually don't like is the answers that people give. So lots of times, you know, especially surrounding um, the International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women, which falls on November 25th, it, a lot of times we see people sharing resources to, to help uh, mitigate domestic violence. And what do those usually look like? It's, you know, lists that say, here are ways to recognize signs of an abusive partner, or, um, you know, here's a hotline you can call if you need help, or here's, you know, a list of all these shelters you can go to. And these are all really, really critical resources. But I feel like the metaphor I like to think of is that there is a fire, you know, a huge forest fire raging all around us. And we are instructing women how to operate a fire extinguisher. We are completely ignoring the structural violence against women, all of these systems that are built into our culture, into our law, into halacha, all these things that are around us that reinforce and perpetuate and sometimes even create violence against women. So what I would like to see is this um, shift away from this like hyper individualistic focus on, you know, what individual women can do or how to stop individual perpetrators and talk about the systems that are keeping us all in this this state of um, structural violence. Okay. Systems keeping us in a state of structural violence. Speaking as a layperson listening to you, I would say, do you really mean that the systems that Orthodox Jews have, which we are so proud of, our Torah, our way of life, how could it be that that is actually causing domestic violence? I think most people listening would say, if anything, those are the guards against it. And domestic violence is a very sad feature that happens, but it's certainly not caused by our system. So what would you respond to that? So I think that um, we need to move away from this idea that domestic violence is sad, um, that it's something that happens to people. Um, and so we need to, you know, empower these individual women to, you know, overcome their their sad situation. Um, and take a little more responsibility for the culture that we have all around us and the um, and which, which we participate in and which we create um, either by actively doing bad things or we do by our our negligence by not tackling the bad things around us. You know, it's very easy to say, like, you know, if I'm not personally beating my wife, I'm not part of the problem. When you talk about a system then that that's not true anymore, you know, when you're talking about culture and laws and halacha. So you asked, you know, how can you say that, you know, that our, is our Torah allowing violence? Um, I think that there are definitely things within halacha, especially halacha as it's interpreted by, for example, you know, the Beit Din in Israel, um, that 
are used as tools to not only harm women, but also to reinforce a culture that tells women that violence is okay. Can you give some examples of what you're talking about? Because I certainly have no love lost for the Rabbanut. I understand that the Rabbanut is an institution with some serious, serious problems. At the same time, saying that they reinforce a culture in which violence is acceptable, that's a very heavy charge. So what do you mean? Give some examples, please. Yeah, so, um, you know, I work at the Center for Women's Justice, and, you know, which is a legal advocate organization that works with, um, you know, with Agunot, you know, the women who are denied divorce or are unable to divorce, women who are harmed by um, basically the structural violence of the state of, um, you know, where religion and state clash, you know, over women's bodies and women's freedom um, and women's rights. There's a case we had actually you know, in May, I think, um, that was actually resolved this summer, um, of a woman who was, um, she was living in a domestic violence shelter. And, you know, she had been separated already for three years from her husband. And she wanted, you know, her get, she wanted to be free. And this man was extremely violent. Um, he had already been, you know, convicted criminally of threatening, you know, to murder her and he strangled a bunch of things. He's basically a bad guy. And this was not you know, up for debate. This was something that was, she was already convicted for. And she went to the Beit Din and she asked, you know, for her get. And the um, the husband had all sorts of conditions, you know, like he wanted, you know, to reduce, you know, child support, which she agreed to. Because, you know, as you know, a lot of times women agree to uh, various things that are against their own interests so they can get their get. Um, and one of the conditions that he placed on giving his get was he wanted her to move back to live close to him. And, you know, as we talked about at the beginning, domestic violence is about control. Mm -hmm. um, and he, and, you know, this, this is a, a classic, you know, expression control move. of that. Right. Yeah. And so, and, you know, and she argued, you know, in the Beijing, she's like, well, I, you know, I moved to the shelter so that I could be safe from him. And, you know, he was trying to control me and he used to stalk me and, you know, he used to limit my every move. Um, and the Beijing was like, well, you know, you can, what, what, what's the harm in it? You know, he won. Basically, they completely downplayed the fact that she was in danger at all. Um, they, you know, which, which is just, just denying the facts. Like, you know, he was, he was already convicted. They made her seem, you know, like, like she was overreacting and she was crazy. They were, uh, they criticized her for going to a domestic violence shelter um, by saying that, well, you just went there because you were trying to take kids away from him. Um, as, as if the man was the victim in a situation where the woman had to go and live in a shelter. And this man had been convicted in court of violence, correct? Yes, yes. And the bait dean was basically saying, the court's wrong. You just were trying to extort him to get the kids. And they're like, well, it's not so bad. The threat to safety is pretty much all in your head. Um, What's you know, a little violence between wants. a couple? Yeah. And and so, you know, in the end, you know, and Nitsan, who was the lawyer in this case, Nitsan Kaspishidani, so, you know, she was, you know, she stood her ground and she was arguing that this is, you know, she came there to, you know, to, to have a regular evidentiary hearing. It wasn't about let's negotiate and see, you know, what the woman will give up for the get. And so like when we talk about violence, we're not just talking about the things that the man did to this woman. We're talking about, you know, the way that this Beitin, you know, for example, is reinforcing the notion that violence isn't so bad, um, that women should, you know, put themselves in danger if it'll get them their get. Also, you know, they're by saying that, you know, that she was just doing it as a ploy to keep the kids away from him. It's also, you know, messing with her head and, you know, saying, making the woman out to be the perpetrator in a situation where, and the man being the victim. Um, so these are all things that we see in the outside culture as well. Um, you know, we see these things all the time. 
even in completely secular situations with police, with, you know, law enforcement, whatever. Um, but when it's coming from a bait dean, when it's coming from, you know, a body that is supposed to be, you know, representing halacha, the executive arm of halacha, basically, um, and they're telling this to a woman, that's not just this woman's problem. This is, you know, going back, this is a structural issue that we have. And especially in Israel, where the Beit Din is an arm of the state. It's not just a religious uh, institution that is, you know, going by, you know, their own religious beliefs. It's part of our justice system, which is supposed to be governed by, you know, democratic laws and is supposed to be, you know, supposed to be better than this. <laughs> and it's not. My mind is blowing up right now, Rachel. You've said so much and so much that's important. And I want to ask you about a few different things you just mentioned. My first question is almost a practical one. And then I'll get to the specifics that lead to the issue of systemic domestic violence. Why was the Beitin so clueless? There's got to be some logic, even if it's faulty logic. But what were they thinking? Is it that we will do whatever necessary to get this woman her get? Or is it misogyny? What is going on behind the doors of the Beitin? Why are they saying these crazy things? So in Halakha, there's um, maybe the biggest problem you know, that we have with uh, cases of get refusal is that, you know, Halakha says that a man has to give a woman a get and it has to be of his own free will. Um, and if it's not of his own free will, then this get is not valid. It's not kosher. So it's not useful for anyone. Um, and there's problems then. So if a woman has a get that's not kosher, meaning that if she goes on to get remarried and she doesn't have an actually kosher get, then it'll be considered adultery. Her children will be considered mamzerim, will be illegitimate children that also can't marry. And so it's this huge, huge thing that judges are very careful not to um, not to mess with. So according to, you know, the Beitin in Israel, they're very, very, um, I guess, strict in their definition of what would be considered a forced get. You know, halakhically, you are only allowed to tell a man to give a get if you think the woman has grounds for a get. Um, the Beitin in Israel defines grounds for a get extremely narrowly. Um, and according to many Batei Din in Israel, um, domestic violence is not considered grounds for divorce. There are even some cases where, um, you know, in the end, a woman got a get, um, but the, the grounds, you know, of cases where there was horrific domestic violence or um, another case where there was, you know, not just violence to the woman herself, but also, you know, to the, the children. Uh, there was a guy who was, you know, in, serving a life sentence in jail. And um, basically none of the violence that they had perpetrated was considered, according to the Beit Din, halachic grounds for divorce. They ended up, you know, the woman got to get, you know, in other ways because they said, because the man, let's say, was, you know, in jail for 17 years, then he was unable, you know, to live with her and have marital relations with her. And therefore they ordered, you know, a get that he should give it because they still understood that this is a wrong situation, but they didn't have the halachic way to actually say, no, domestic violence is ground for a get, um, which to us sounds insane you know if when you see what these women have gone through and to have a court of law and a court havalacha tell a woman that you can't leave a marriage because of what happened to you like violence does not justify leaving a marriage you know it's not just horrible injustice it's also this is reinforcing this internal narrative that so many women have um, when they're abused you know, that they justify the abuse that happens to them for whatever reason. It's their own fault on some level. Yeah. Like so many women I've spoken with, you know, that until they actually leave, they feel like it's their fault that 
that the abuse is happening to them. And also, you know, this is something that, you know, going back to what you said earlier, specific to the Orthodox community, I think that, you know, that we have this concept of, of Shalom Bayit. Lots of times that's interpreted as women are the ones who have the disproportionate or who carry the disproportionate burden of making a marriage work. So the worse the situation gets, the more responsibility the woman feels to fix it. It's her um, failure. Yeah. And, and so that means that, you know, if the man gets worse and worse and worse to her, then she feels worse and worse about herself because she hasn't fixed him yet. You know, she's, you know, her marriage is failed, um, which is a very twisted way of looking at it. You know, a woman who leaves a situation and saves her life by leaving, that's not a failure, you know? But we consider that if she gets divorced, that, oh, she has a failed marriage. Like, no, she she won. <laughs> you know, like, she survived that. She won. And so, like, the the way that we, um, you know, put this burden on women in the firm community to be the ones upholding relationships is, is really insidious in, a, in an abusive situation. Going back to the bait in, I realize that's only one example of many, many that you could bring. You basically, on some level, explain why morally a bait in would want to do this. Halakhically, they're trying to avoid a forced or coerced get. And that's why they'll say what seem to be absurd statements. That doesn't explain why they would tell the woman that it's your fault, that you kind of made this up, that the reason that you went to the shelter was not because you're avoiding real domestic violence or in different terms. It's one thing to say that we're going to give in to the man's demands in order to avoid a course to get. It's another thing to accuse the woman of lying in situations where there's no evidence of that. What's going on? I think that also there's, um, because you know sometimes this comes up also when women request ketubah, um, usually women don't receive, you know, ketubah payments today um, because of just the way that property is, you know, divided. Um, but sometimes, you know, women do request to receive You're talking about ketubah payments, payments when they get divorced. Right. You know, the, the ketubah basically says that, you know, upon divorce, that a woman is entitled to whatever amount of, you know, maintenance from the, uh, the husband. So, um, you know, sometimes when the couple has, you know, no assets or or whatever, then um, the woman tries to claim ketubah and she can only collect this ketubah if she has grounds for divorce. So lots of times that also will come up that um, they will find, you know, if, if the woman, if it's the woman's fault, you know, if she left the marriage without any good quote unquote reason, then she loses her ketubah. So I have here a quote actually that um, was from a Psaktin from a rabbinic court ruling that was issued earlier this year. I'm just going to read to a translated quote. Um, so this is, this is about a woman who, um, you know, she left a relationship and she, uh, that was abusive. And the Beitin basically told her that she was the one who was at fault for, you know, quote unquote, destroying the home. And so, so this woman is trying to get a get. This is from the Unitania Rabbinic Court. She, you know, she brings all this proof about why she was justified leaving the marriage and all the things that happened and whatever. Um, and so this is the response from one of the Rabbinic Court judges. He says, and I'm quoting here, translated, we see time after time that when a woman makes a police complaint about her husband, it breaks the trust between the couple and in the family in a way that is nearly irreparable. It makes living with her like living in close quarters with a snake, such that the husband has to worry that at any moment, if his wife doesn't like something, she'll call the police on him. So basically, this woman brought proof of, you know, all these bad things happened and I called the police and, you know, whatever, as, as a way to concretize for them, like this was an objectively bad situation. And yet they use that against her and they say, to well, show she's, she's a bad wife. She's tormenting yeah, him. She, 
that she basically was at fault for breaking down the trust in the marriage because she called the police on him and it made him feel bad. And that, you know, that this and he and he seems to be, you know, tying this to a larger phenomenon. He's not talking only about her. He's saying, you know, we see time after time um, that this is, you know, this is a phenomenon that happens that women call the police on their husband whenever they feel like it, you know, for no reason. And that's what, you know, causes the breakdown of the marriage. And then they rule as, you know, because of that, that um, she loses her ketubah because she's at fault for the divorce. You know, that she was the one who basically made the marriage break down. Um, there was By no calling the police to- when he was violent. Yeah. And, you know, because he, he basically was... I guess fine. <laughs> I I'm not know. trying to be flippant but, here, but it reminds me a bit of the Bob Dylan song, Neighborhood Bully, which is talking about Israel. And the neighborhood bully takes out a bomb factory and he's criticized. He's supposed to feel bad. The bombs were meant for him. This victim blaming where the person who's defending himself or herself is the one who's actually causing it by having the temerity to actually go on the defense by calling the police, by doing what has to be done. When we talk about it vis-a-vis people's attitude towards Israel defending itself, we look at that as anti-Semitic if people deny Israel the right to do so. This isn't any different. Yeah, so victim blaming is like, you know, like I said before, like we see this in all the, you know, every time you talk about violence, violence against women, there's always going to be victim blaming. Um, you know, but when it's coming from a Diane, it's coming from a judge, it feels worse. And by the way, this Diane, you know, a lot of people say like, oh, the problem with the, the Beitin is, you know, the Haredi judges and whatever. And so this Diane was not Haredi. He was a national religious judge, which is kind of just to break that myth that, oh, if we just have people who are, quote unquote, more moderate or that, that you know, national religious judges are more moderate than Haredi, that's not true. You know, like we said at the beginning, you know, that domestic violence is endemic to every single class and sector and every single religious group and, you know, or non-religious group that this is something that we all, you know, deal with. And I've heard that as well, that people should not think that this is a Haredi problem. It is very much a problem no, throughout all sectors. Definitely in not. that Tilumi world, the national religious world, from what I understand, the same exact problems exist in the Batedin. Yes, it's, it's really everywhere. Can I go back to the question about systemic violence and systemic issues? Yeah. Because when you talked before a few minutes ago, I was thinking of three different levels. On one level, the fact that the Beit Din is tied to the power of the state, which creates a certain systemic problem. There's a second level that even if the Beit Din were not tied to the state, it has a type of authority within the system, in the community, which is a second systemic issue. And then the third systemic issue is the one which probably would make me feel most uncomfortable, which is the question of, is it something inherent in your opinion in halacha itself, which has nothing to do with the Beit Din or the fact that the Beit Din is tied to the power of the state? To restate that in different terms, is the question a problem of religion and state? Is it a problem of simply any religious authority, even if not tied to the state? Or is it a problem in the texts themselves, which mean that even if the Beit Din tries its best to do the right thing, it's forced or coerced into doing otherwise because of something that it sees in halacha? So I I think the answer to all of them is a... Yes, <laughs> with, you know, with obviously, you know, explanations that are slightly different for each one. So like, you know, the religion and state being entangled is a huge problem in Israel. You know, anywhere else in the world, you know, a woman can get, you know, a civil divorce and she also gets a religious divorce if she, you know, if that's what her conscience dictates. But in Israel, there is no civil divorce. There is only religious divorce, which, by the way, is not just for Jews. That's for everyone in Israel. 
if you're Muslim or if you're Catholic or whatever, you have to, if you want to dissolve your marriage, you have to go by the dictates of your religious, uh, your religious community as it is recognized by the state. Um, so, you know, there's kind of this double whammy that happens in Israel specifically with women who are agunot, women who are trying to get their get, that not only are they, you know, stuck from a religious perspective, um, even if they're not religious, and even if they say, you know what, I don't care, you know, about this, this, you know, I don't believe it, or I, whatever reason they decide, um, they can't get divorced civilly, they can't separate their status, you know, in their ID papers, they will be considered married always to this person, they have to file their taxes with them, and they have to, you know, they can't get single parent benefits, like even something as small as like, you know, getting whatever stipend for your kids school books every August, like things like that, that are so mundane, are all tied into the, you know, this religious power that the state is wielding that you have no way to opt out of. Um, so that, that kind of, you know, compounds the problem of get refusal that's specific to Israel, which is kind of funny because a lot of people think like, oh, you know, in Israel, the situation is better for Aguno because the state has the power to help women and to issue sanctions and do things that- You can lock the guy up technically in jail. Yeah, technically. You know, and, but, you know, when you look at what's happening on the ground and you see, you know, like we were talking about before, that it's so rare for a Beit Din to- order a man to give a get, you know, because of this, this, you know, fear of a forced get, it's so rare to actually tell a man to give a get. And a condition for him, you know, imposing all these sanctions is the Beit Din themselves believing that the woman deserves a get, um, which happens. And I think statistics from the Rackman Center of Barilan cite that only in 1.5% of cases that come before the Beit Din, they rule that um, to compel the man to give a get. 1.5%. Putting that in context, the you know the same statistics also show that um, women in the general population who are getting divorced have been threatened with get refusal in one out of every three divorces, um, either you know explicitly or you know in negotiations you know saying I'm not going to you know give you whatever things that you know or in, unless you you know agree to this and that there won't be a get. In other words, 33 percent of marriages that end in divorce include either get refusal or a threat of get refusal. Yeah, yeah. So that obviously, when women are working within that that state of duress, obviously the things that they're going to be agreeing to and not is not you know from a neutral place. They're going to be agreeing to things that are against their own best interests because they feel like they have no choice. Um, and that that was you know the, the number one out of every three was the number in the general population, and then in the religious population, um, that number actually jumps to one in every two, which means half of all women who are going through divorce have at some point face get refusal or the threat of get refusal, um, which is really scary. <laughs> and when it's tied to the power of the state, that's a real threat, because even if a person were to say, I'll just ignore halacha, if that's that person's choice, well, here there is no such choice. That's not an option. Right, right. It's just they're really stuck. The abuse of power of the man compounded by halacha that gives him you know, even more power, compounded by the state which makes that power have even more teeth. So it's really like, so this is exactly when we talk about structural violence, this is exactly how it plays out. That we're not talking about individual actors, we're talking about how the system and the structure as a whole creates the environment for women to be hurt. But you're going to argue that that's true even on the level where the state isn't involved in the Bate Din. 
even a Beit Din on its own, also has that power, assuming that the man and the woman feel themselves bound by halacha. Yeah, so that brings you to your second question of, you know, what about, is the problem inherently in, you know, the Beit Din as an authority, you know, like, even if you're not in Israel. Um, so that, that I think that also is, you know, a bit problematic if you're thinking about, you know, we talked about, about how it's very hard for women to leave abusive situations. I mean, a lot of that is about, you know, feeling that you don't have control. When you put, you know, just from a halachic perspective or whatever, you put the decision of whether a woman has the, um, has the right, really, to leave a marriage or not, um, not in her own in her own self. It's not her own agency that's deciding, can I not be married to this person or not? Can I choose that? Um, you put that instead in the hands of a body of three men of a court who decide, do you have grounds to leave a marriage? Um, I think that that is not just difficult, you know, for us to deal with, you know, as a society, just, you know, the individual woman, if you think about, think about just what that does psychologically to an entire gender of people, that when you tell them that the right to leave a marriage is not something that they choose for themselves, that it's this external decision to them, um, that really wears away, I think, at how you view your identity and your agency and who you are. You know, it's, it's very problematic to tell someone that these three men decide if you were justified to leave, leave your marriage or not. Um, and, you know, that's something that is just baked in to the way that you know, the, the Jewish community works. That's difficult. I'm not sure how, you know, if you consider yourself bound by halacha. This is obviously something which does not give me any pleasure to talk about. As an Orthodox Jew who feels bound by halacha, who feels that this is a divine system, who believes that the divine presence is present in that system, it's very distressing to hear that there's something inherent in halacha which is leading directly to domestic violence. That's not even so much a question as just a statement, as this is a very difficult thing to listen to. I don't, know if it's, I don't know if it's really correct to say it's necessarily inherently leading to domestic violence, but it definitely creates the environment that um, that allows it to flourish. And, you know, I think also, even if we can't envision a different way to do this, like, let's say right now, you know, you're just hearing this and you're like, wow, what can I do? I'm a religious person and I don't know how to fix this. Um, I think it's OK and it's important to be able to talk about the fact that it's problematic and to not say, well, if I don't have a better solution, then what's the point? Like, like sometimes a lot of times I think, um, especially in activist circles, we think, well, what's, what's your better solution as, and that ends up shutting down the fact that identifying the problem and articulating it is a huge step in itself. Um, so even if I don't know how to fix this necessarily, you know, on, on the, the level of halacha, I think that it's, it's really important to acknowledge that, there, there are harmful things in halacha that we need to contend with. Okay, Rachel, then let me ask the question which you just alluded to. Is there any solution that you have in mind, even if it's not a complete solution, some steps that might move in the right direction that will allow us to maintain halacha, that will allow us to remain halachic Jews working within the system as opposed to chucking it, and at the same time, we'll deal with some of these issues that are so obviously difficult, which lead to systemic violence. So I think that, um, you know, we talked at the way beginning that, um, you know, moving away from conversations that focus on individual perpetrators or individual victims and to recognize the structural problems, I think is a really big first step that will kind of get us out of this um, this mindset, which is not being very helpful for anyone. Mm -hmm. um, you know, talk about the bigger problems um, and then 
when you recognize those bigger problems, you can also think of you know better solutions for them. So, for example, you know a way to tackle get refusal in a very easy way, in a very accessible way, is just halakhic prenups and postnups. Um, you know, just signing an agreement that takes away some of that institutional power. Um, and puts it back in the hands of women, especially prenups and postnups that, um, and when we're talking about Israel specifically, that limit the um, opportunities for the Beit Din to get involved in whether a woman, you know, deserves her freedom or not, and just, you know, bypass that question entirely and um, and just puts that uh, decision in the woman's hands herself. When a woman decides, I want to leave a marriage, then she can leave it. And then it's not a question of like, just, you know, should she or not? Prenups like that, I think are very important. It's very easy to sign one. The Center for Women's Justice has a prenup that does that. You know, where not only it takes away, you know, it neutralizes a lot of common things to get refused, like extortion or just, you know, dragging it out too long and kind of abusive dynamics that happen, you know, between the parties. But it also protects the couple from the intervention the you know unnecessary intervention of the bait dean itself. So the bait dean just oversees the get and that's it. You know, they don't deal with other things. Which is important, you know, from a, a legal perspective. It's important also from a structural perspective, you know, because it changes the dynamic of you know, religion in Saint Israel. And also it's from just a psychological perspective for women, I think it's really important the statement that it makes that, you know, that you can leave. Mm-hmm. You can leave. You know that it's not dependent on someone else. So that that's you know just a very easy thing you could do is signing a post up, um, and then also just being aware of what's going on, um, being aware of uh, peace dean of rulings that come out of the bait dean, how they treat domestic violence, and you know sharing those with other people um, so they are also aware. Um, and also, I think supporting, you know, on a structural level, alternatives to the Beit Din system in Israel that aren't the ones that are uh, controlled by the state. Like, you know, we um, a few years ago, um, the Center for Women's Justice founded a or established a Beit Din that was not part of the state system, um, headed by Rabbi Daniel Sperber. And, you know, he issued annulments so far to four women. You know, and these are cases that the state has completely you know, given up on, and these women were stuck. And then Rosh came in, and he figured out ways to to free these individual women. And what it did was not just that these women went free, because you think four women in the the sea of all the thousands of Agunot is a drop in the bucket, but the the institutional power definitely shifted. That when you have an alternative to this monopoly of the state, it changes the ground rules completely. But as you said, that's not going to change their legal status. That enables them halachically to get married, of course, with the caveat that one accepts Rabbi Sperber's determination that these annulments are proper in this case. Obviously a controversial idea, but legally, according to the state of Israel, they're still married to their original partners. Right. So legally, they're still considered their, um, you know, married to their original partners. It gives them the um, religious freedom, basically, that they were stripped of by the state. Um, you know, to determine what they consider halachic psak that they want to accept or not. Um, it's it's very bizarre when you think about it, you know, that the state doesn't just have a monopoly on the courts. The state has a monopoly on halacha. Illegal. It's it's so strange to think about this, really coming from, you know, America. It's it, when the state says you can only go to these, um, you know, these bateidin that are operated by the state, you can't go to a beidin that rules this way or that way or whatever. Um that that's very weird, you know that that the government has a a limit 
on which halachas you're allowed to use in that. that that's pretty crazy um, right. from a religious freedom perspective. So like when we talk about like, you know, breaking the monopoly of, uh, of the Rabbanut or breaking the monopoly of the state religious establishment, we need to create the alternatives that are there. It's not to say, oh, let's, let's burn it all down. We need to burn it all down and have something else there people who want it. Yeah, well, what you're saying is that the state is obviously working with Batei Din that work within a certain shita, a very specific way of looking at halacha, and there could be a Beitin, which has a different way of understanding what the grounds of divorce are, which is still working within halacha, but doesn't have necessarily the same definition of proper grounds, which can change everything. Or, you know, the, the Batei Din that, um, that are willing to use different halachic mechanisms, like annulments, for example. Which are very controversial in halacha, of course, it should be noted. You know, you will have people supporting and rejecting halachic decisions from all different angles. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, people Welcome to Judaism. To choose. Yes, people should choose, you know, which uh, halachic authorities they go by. It shouldn't be that the state decides for you who your halachic authority is. That's bizarre. Um, so there was a case very recently of a state rabbinic court that issued an annulment to a woman, and they got blackmailed and bullied, basically, but from you know people who are outside the system, and they were uh, forced to recant. So this woman had, you know, she had an annulment. Um, I think it was after associated with a, a state-sponsored baitin. Yeah, and this was a state baitin. You know, issued her an annulment. They got pressured, and then they, you know, they retracted their their opinion, and now she's back in Aguna after you know eighteen years of being chained, and so like. Even when the system, or you know, think of the, the Agunav spot, you know, from from a few years ago, you know, of a woman who her husband was in a coma, and then she got, um, you know, this is a, a more controversial halachic move, which was the get zikui, which was you know that they gave a get on the husband's behalf, and this was also from a state beitin that did this in spot, and they got you know completely attacked. Um, so the the state system it really limits the um, the expression of halacha. That you can have Dayanim who find ways to, you know, to help women um, and there will be repercussions for them um, because they are part of the state system. There will be repercussions and, you know, they won't get promoted, which also has financial consequences for them. So it's not, um, you know, this is when we talk about structural things. These are all structural things that, you know, we might have solutions within Halacha or we might have ways that we can, um, you know, that we can help people and have a more just system. But because it is inherently tied to the state, then none of those avenues are open to us anymore. And that is should be frustrating for us, not just, you know, as women or people who care about women. Um, it's also frustrating for people who care about halakha. Yeah, I think that this is a violation of the concept of lahadil Torah, lahadira. To make Torah great and glorious means there has to be more than one shita. And you might fairly ask, what about the fact that in the old days there was a Sanhedrin, a central governing halachic body that determined the halakha for all Jews? That's a fair question. Yet there are many approaches and answers which explain why the concept of Sanhedrin, a central body halachically, is not applicable to the modern state of Israel as it is right now. This doesn't even get into the issue that I've heard approaches that say that the Sanhedrin, even in its time, was in some ways a bidiyavad, something which is done only when there's a need to resolve an issue. But ideally, it's better when different communities have different religious practices in many situations. And no less an authority than Rav Soloveitchik has said that Religion tied to the state is a problem, and listeners to this podcast certainly know that I identify with that idea and that ideology. I'll just say one thing, which uh, on a personal note, that my daughter Tali recently got engaged, and last night, Rachel, this is just by happenstance, we decided on a date for the wedding, and thank you, and right before we started recording, 
I actually was writing to somebody about getting a prenup for her and a postnup for me and Eliza so that we can do it at that maybe at the same time. That might be a nice thing to do. So certainly I'm on the same page as you are when it comes to the idea of emphasizing to everybody at least prenup and postnup. This is an important move. I told my yes. daughter last night when I was driving her back to her midrasha, her seminary, Migdalos, I said, Everyone has to do this because it has to be considered a standard part of a wedding the way that we look at the ketuva. This is part of a wedding that everybody does. It's not the entire answer, but it might be hopefully a big part of it. Yeah, I mean, I also like, tell um, people before they get married of why they're signing, you know, a prenup goes up. They're not signing it because they don't trust their spouse or because, you know, they think something might go wrong. That's not why you're signing it. I mean, you shouldn't get married. <laughs> you should not get married to the person, you know, at all if you if you have any or you know you know questions if they're going to abuse you um that that should just be the ground rule um you know but when you're signing a, a prenup or a postnup you're doing it because you understand that your marriage you know is not just about yourself and it's not just about yourself and your spouse it's about how you and your spouse as a unit will make the jewish community a better place and it's it's a positive thing that you're doing it's not you know protection from a negative thing. It's that you are using your union to strengthen the Jewish community and to bring justice and to, you know, to help other people. And like, I can't think of a better way to start off a marriage than by doing that, you know, than by, um, you know, making the strong declaration that, that you're getting married with someone because you want to you know, to use your marriage as a vehicle for good things in the world. Yeah, I think it should be seen as a simcha when you do this to take something which is a problem and find a halachic way to fix it, at least as best as we can. That is a beautiful thing. I think the people who do a post-nup should make a kiddish because this is a real cause for celebration that we're trying to do something. As you said earlier, Rachel, if nothing else, we're at least identifying a real issue and then seeing what we can do to alleviate it on some level. This is the last question, Rachel, before we go. I'm going to go back to that question, which I knew you didn't want to answer, but I think it's still important on some level. You did compare talking about individual domestic violence against a specific victim, like taking a fire extinguisher into a forest fire. At the same time, there are those individual women who do need help. So what can we as individuals do for those individual women? Should we find out that there is a case of individual and specific domestic violence in the home? Yeah, for sure. I think that um, there are women who need fire extinguishers in their house right now. Um, the problem is if we, you know, if we stop there, if we say that that is, you know, we we did it, we, you know, we fixed it, we gave them a fire extinguisher, and now we're kind of absolved from thinking about the bigger pictures. So I think that it's um, it should be something that we do in addition to tackling the structural issues um, and never as, you know, a replacement for tackling the structural things. So, yeah, so there's um, always going to be someone in your life, whether you're aware of it or not, who is currently or has in the past or in the future will be suffering from domestic violence. That's just a fact. And it's sad to think about that, um, but it's real. Um, so having these resources available are very important. You know, being a lifeline for the people in your life, you know, without judgment um, so that they can come to you, you know, if they need help for something. And, and also, I just I want to just quickly reframe the idea of, you know, you being the one to, to help people or save people. A lot of times people think of um, victims of domestic violence as people who just need to be empowered more, um, who need to feel stronger. And if we encourage them a lot, then they'll feel strong enough to leave. Um, and I think that, you know, psychologically, a lot of times it's actually the opposite, <laughs> that a lot of women stay 
in bad relationships because, you know, dafta because they feel very strong. Um, you know, they feel like enduring pain and enduring, you know, this, this very difficult situation. It's meritorious to endure pain like that. Yeah, yeah. There's, you know, I think with women specifically, there's this very um, harmful and, you know, somewhat twisted idea that um, it's it's virtuous, you know, and it's, uh, you know, it's, wow, look how look how good you are that you you suffered through this horrible thing. And, you know, women who stay in these bad relationships feel like they're very, very strong. Um, and it feels like leaving that is giving up, you know, leaving that is is being weak. There's so much psychology that's behind this and you know, the, the, the psychology, the culture, you know, the structures that we talked about, all of these things are are just compounding you know, the problem. And, the, you know, the, I guess the, the hopeful part of that is that the same way that we can identify, you know, we, we identify these structures as things that are hurting people. These are structures that we have built. Um, these are all man-made things that we have done. And the same way that we have built these structures, we can also dismantle them. Um, We can create structures that are not like this. It's not this fate that we have to accept. So, you know, after we identify why these structures are problematic, we can then rebuild them in ways, you know, that promote safety and justice and a better life for our community. And it sounds like we can encourage women who are currently suffering from domestic violence, don't always be strong. That's not necessarily a virtue. Yeah, that, that it's okay, you know, to leave, you know, to maybe not call leaving a marriage, you know, a, a failed marriage, you know, that by leaving, you know, you are helping yourself, you know, you are helping your kids, that it's not, um, it's, it's not a failure. Rachel, as you mentioned, Thursday, November 25th, we're releasing this after that, was International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women. And it's very important that everybody take note of what you've mentioned today. So I really appreciate you joining me today on the podcast. Thank you for being honest and open and saying what you said today. Thanks for uh, having this forum here that's specifically geared toward the from community because, yes, it is something that gets swept under the rug. And I'm really glad that we're talking about it. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Mamanides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like The Orthodox Conundrum Podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, The Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffee House can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum. 
on jewishcoffeehouse.com.